Please take your Bibles in hand and turn to the Gospel of Mark once again, as we are in Mark chapter 9, and we will pick up with the reading of God's Word in verse 30. Here Jesus once again tells his disciples, who seem to be so slow of understanding so often, Jesus tells them about his coming death and resurrection. And these middle chapters here in Mark provide a a picture, a view into the private teaching that Jesus is giving to his disciples. And we've seen his public ministry, we've seen the miracles, we've seen the display of his authority, and now we're seeing more of instruction with the disciples. And we see the lack of faith of the disciples. We saw last time the struggling faith of of the Father, and we, but we also saw the lack of faith of the disciples the last time we considered um, a text from Mark. But here we see that Jesus teaches that the way of the cross, the, the, the way that he is teaching, requires the suffering and death of Christ. It requires humility of the servants of Christ, and it requires a sincere desire for God's glory. One thing that Mark is not afraid to do, and it's interesting to think about Mark's writing that that Peter was was behind that, scholars think. Mark is very clear in showing us the struggles and and the failings of the disciples. Peter probably was an old man by this time and could, could look back on his life and, and made sure that Mark related accurately the struggles that they have. But here Mark is showing us what true discipleship looks like. Jesus has already told the disciples that he's going to die in very plain words, but he, he tells them again, and it seems that the cross is looming larger and larger upon the horizon. But here Jesus helps us see a bit more of what he requires of his disciples, humility and self-abandoned worship. So let us pray and then let us read God's word from Mark chapter 9. Let us pray. Lord God, we need you in this hour and we need your word and we want to sit under its authority. Lord, your word is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword and we pray that you, by your Spirit and through your Word, would do your work in our hearts tonight. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Mark 9, starting with verse 30. And they went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking them in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. John said to him, Teacher, 
We saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Amen. And we praise God that he has spoken to us this evening in his holy and inerrant word. The first thing that we want to notice about this text is that the kingdom of Christ, the way that Christ is bringing, required his suffering and death upon the cross. As we said, up until this point in the book, we've seen displays, clear displays of Christ's power and authority. We've seen his compassion. We've seen his good deeds that he did. But the real reason that Christ came to die was to deal with our sins. And he did that by bearing the penalty of our sins in his own body on the tree, Scripture says, upon the cross when he died. Remember that back in the book of Genesis, when Adam and Eve were in the garden, they were given a beautiful place to live. They were given many good things, but there was one prohibition. There was one thing that God said, do not do. And that was to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And along with that prohibition came the penalty. And that penalty was death. The death was not just upon Adam and Eve for their sin, but we learn as we read about what happened in the fall and in in chapters and, and books preceding that that curse of death came upon all men. All mankind descending from Adam and Eve by ordinary generation sinned in them and fell with them in that first transgression, our catechism tells us. That sin came, and with that sin came death. And it was upon all of us, the sons and daughters of Adam. The penalty, the wages of sin is death. Adam and Eve failed in that test of obedience and brought judgment upon themselves and upon us, their descendants. But Christ came. But Christ came to bear that penalty of our sins for his people that we might be made right before a just and a holy God. Now, that's an old story to many of you. If there's any here that that's a new story, I'm excited to tell you about that. And, and it's become, unfortunately, commonplace, I think, too many times for us to hear the gospel, to hear what it means that Christ paid the penalty for our sins. The disciples didn't get it. They didn't understand what Jesus actually came to do. They didn't understand it until later after his death and resurrection and probably after his ascension did they fully understand what Jesus was actually doing. But remember that Peter has already made his great confession. He has already said, you are the Christ. He's already proclaimed Jesus as the Messiah. Yet he probably didn't know what kind of Messiah Jesus really was. They wanted a a conquering Messiah. They wanted one that would step on the neck of the Romans. They wanted one that would save them with military might and political power. But a suffering servant? No thank you, they seem to say. So Jesus tells them again what's going to happen. 
These men were his closest companions. They, Jesus knew that his suffering and death would be a supreme test for his followers. They needed to understand the way that Christ was going to take. And here in this second time, Mark relates the account of, again, how Jesus patiently explains to them what's going to happen. That he's going to be killed and he's going to rise the third day. And as we saw in chapter 8, the pattern of them failing to understand is, is present. And then Jesus instructs them more. But he instructs them more, not just simply to help them understand it, but about discipleship. About what it means to follow him. It might be helpful to consider that in the disciples' defense, in the teaching of that day, they really didn't have a category for this type of resurrection. When they thought of the resurrection, they were thinking about far off into the future. They were thinking about a time and a place where where there would be a resurrection, where there would be redemption, but it was way off in the future. And they didn't understand how one could could physically rise from the dead. They, They didn't seem to have a category of that, even though they had seen it, even though they had seen miracles that Christ had done in raising from the dead. As one commentator said that about them, in that they were afraid to ask, as verse 32 tells us, it was a confused principle of piety rather than a clear knowledge of the truth that kept them attached to Christ. It was just that they wanted to follow Jesus. It was that they, they loved him and they, and they had an allegiance to him, but they didn't have a clear understanding Now, we are not told exactly why they were afraid to ask, but it's likely that they remember Christ's reproof of them. Remember what Jesus said to Peter, and and Peter, of course, was way out of line. Peter um, rebuked Jesus the first time that Christ told about his death and suffering, and Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. Jesus was very straightforward in his reproof of them for their lack of understanding. In chapter 8, in reference to his miracles of feeding the multitudes with only a little bread, Jesus said to them, Do you not perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see, and having ears do you not hear, and do you not remember? And so it's almost like they, they, they couldn't get it, and they were too embarrassed to ask for a further explanation. I, I've, I've been there. You know, you think you really should understand something, and and you think it's probably been explained to you, and you think, well, hopefully I'll just get it later. And maybe that's what the disciples thought, that they would just get it later. But Jesus wanted them to know what was in their future. Jesus knew he was headed for the cross. The cross was central to what he came to do. They needed to get it. And I wonder if we contemplate the necessity of the death of Christ enough in our own in our own personal devotions, in our, in our times of prayer, in, a, in our lives. And if when we see the darkness of the world around us, if we, if we recognize enough in our hearts and our minds that, that Christ died to bring light to the world. Christ died to redeem a people. He had to die. He had to pay the penalty for our sins because we couldn't. We were hopeless without him. We need to return to the foot of the cross to seek the mercy and forgiveness of Christ. 
Not only did the way of the cross require the suffering and death of the Lord Jesus, the way that Christ put forth requires the humility of his servants as well. The contrast, of course, to humility is pride, and that is really on display in the desire of the disciples. Scripture tells us here that the disciples were going on their way, they were talking about something, and Jesus asked them, what are you guys talking about? And you can almost see them. Can't you just see them in your mind's eye? It, it says they're in a house, but you know they're probably looking at the floor, maybe kicking the dust on the floor, and maybe mumbling a little something, hoping that Jesus wouldn't understand them. You know, we're talking about who's the greatest. You know, um, they didn't want to answer. They knew. They knew they were caught. It was. It was so. It was so different from the the message of discipleship that he had been telling them. What did he tell them in chapter 8? He said, if any of you would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. That doesn't sound like anything of of vying for position and what they were trying to figure out who was the greatest. No, Jesus, they knew it was not what Jesus had taught them. And what what evil ambition pride brings. J.C. Ryle points out that pride is one of the commonest sins which beset human nature. He said, we are all born Pharisees. I think that's true. I think that, that if, if we're honest with ourselves, we all struggle with this in some way. Whether a person is rich or poor, a commoner or a king, they can struggle with pride. We can look at these men and say, oh, they're just fishermen. What do they have to be proud about? Why are they you know, jockeying for position in the, in the group of Christ's inner circle? Well... It's common to every man. It's common to all of us that they struggle with pride. And it's not about really where you are in the pecking order. It's about the heart and the heart's desire for recognition and position. I remember when I worked in manufacturing in Kansas, um, we had an an aircraft and and, um, we had a new, basically a plant manager. I think he was the chief of of operations, and he came in and wanted to make all these changes, and he set up this rather large area on the factory floor and had all these boards, and he would have this daily meeting with all the managers. And a lot of the, a lot of the mechanics would say, oh, that's the liar's club, because their assumption was is, is that all the managers were, were telling the boss exactly what he wanted to hear. And I would walk by in the course of my work, and I would see them, and I thought, you know, all those managers are just trying to get recognized by the upper-level management. But what I too often failed to recognize was my own pride and the envy of my own heart, wishing I could be part of that. Because even when we disguise it, J.C. Ryle says that often pride is cloaked in false humility. And that's so true in our own hearts. If we don't guard our hearts, saints of God, we can cloak our own pride in false humility. Pride prevents repentance, Ryle says. It takes humility to recognize our sin. And because it prevents repentance, it keeps men from Christ. It hinders brotherly love, and pride dulls our spiritual senses. So what is Jesus' reaction to these men in, in their pride and in their, in their vying for position? Well, He tells them of the inverted nature of his kingdom. He says, if you want to be truly great, you'll be a servant. Do you want to be first? 
be last. Learn how to outdo others in serving, like we heard this morning. But this is not what we've been taught from our youth, is it? We, we've been told, look out for number one. If you're going to get anything in this world, you've got to get it for yourself. You've got to be looking out for yourself. But Jesus turns their ideas and ours on their head. He said, the way up is the way down. And then he set before them an, an example of what it means to be humble. Jesus picks up a child. It, one commentator I read said that they could have even been in Peter's house, and maybe this child was even Peter's. We don't know. But Jesus picks up this child, and he says, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. And the example, I don't think, is really the child here in this, but Jesus in what he did in embracing this child and in, in saying you have to embrace the lowest of society. Because you see, in this society, this was, this was probably an infant. Okay, infants didn't count for much in this society. Because, to be honest, so many of them died. And because they couldn't work or be taught the great things of their society, they didn't hold them in much value. So Jesus picks up this child who doesn't have much worth in their eyes and says, embrace the lowly. Be like me in embracing the lowly. Now, we are told to be like children in our faith and in in other ways, but in humility, often children aren't very humble. And you don't have to teach a child to be proud. Okay, so I think the example here is Jesus, not the child. In In the fact that Jesus embraced the lowly. Jesus cared for the downcast. He, he loved those that were kicked to the curb of society in that day. The humble one receives the lowly, the outcast, the children. And I thought of this in light of, of just this past week. I think it was amazing that we had 80 volunteers here to serve 120 children during VBS. And I commend Christ Church for that work. The gospel was spread. These children learned about Jesus as we embraced the children, as we took time and a lot of thought and a lot of planning and a lot of energy to minister to these children and bring the gospel to them. But what other ways do we need to pause and learn from these words of Christ? How often do we pass by those in need? Just yesterday, I was on my way to take one of my children to work, and, and someone was sitting in the middle of the road, and their, their, uh, gas, the, the door to their gas cap was open. I assumed they ran out of gas. They didn't seem to have the presence of mind even to get over to the side. They were literally in the middle of the lane, and I commented um, rather self-righteously to my daughter, you know, why don't they just walk to the gas station and get some gas? You know, and they were just sitting there, probably trying to, to get a hold of someone who could help them. You know, if, if I would have had more time, I would have stopped to try to help them. But how many times do we pass by those? How many times do we look down our noses at those who have made their own bed, in a sense, in the bad fortune that has come upon them, often through their own sin and stupidity? Yet we are called to have compassion upon even those and embrace those people in humility. I can think of no greater example other than Christ, of course, as, than the Apostle Paul. 
we had the privilege this morning in, in um, Sunday school at looking in Ephesians 3. And Paul spoke of himself in such um, degrading terms. He said he is the least of the saints. And, and if you look at the language there that he uses in Ephesians 3, he says basically he is less than the least of all the saints. Paul had, a, had such a recognition of the grace that was his in Jesus Christ that he was not afraid to say, I'm the lowest of the low. I do not deserve to be doing what I'm doing. Paul understood it. And you see his humility coming out in, in the, the book of Corinthians 2, um, in, in 1 Corinthians. In, Corinthian, in, the, in Corinth, remember, there was a lot of, of um, competition for who was the greatest apostle. You know, there were those that said, I follow Paul, and I follow Cephas, and I follow Apollos. You know, but Paul, he's, he's, he doesn't want anything to do with that. And he uses language in 1 Corinthians 4, 9, and 10. And he says, For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. And what he's, I think the picture that, and, and I, I read a sermon where it brought this out, and I thought this is so helpful to think in these terms. He's thinking of a, of a Roman legion rolling into town as this big military parade after a victory. And here you have the generals at the head of the, of the parade and the commanders that come after that, and people are rejoicing, you know, and the soldiers next. And then you have the prisoners. People are jeering. And then at the very end, you have those that are condemned to death. Paul's saying, that's us. I'm willing to be those people for Jesus Christ. I'm willing to be even the ones at the end of the parade that's headed to the Colosseum to be eaten by lions, if that's what it means to be humble for Jesus Christ. And that's how Paul rebukes their pride in Corinth. <clears throat> So we've seen that the way of the cross required the suffering and death of Christ. Christ paid the penalty for our sins. And his way is the way of humility. And finally, we see in the final verses that we should have a sincere desire for the glory of God and the advancement of Christ's kingdom in all things. And I call this last point self-abandoning worship. Because what you see here. In, in the words of, of John, the beloved of all people, he says, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. Notice that. He was not following us. He was not part of our group. He was not part of our circle. We're supposed to be the ones that do that. The, the irony is, is, remember just a few verses back, they were unable to cast out a demon because of their lack of faith. And yet, yet John is concerned to protect their, their rights or whatever he assumed that they were. But Jesus once again rebukes him. We don't know who this follower was. He was certainly not one of the twelve. But remember that Jesus had commissioned 72 followers to go out and spread his message. And he even gave them authority to cast out demons. So it's... It's very likely that this person was, was one of those, 
uh, 72. But here the disciples have this elitist attitude about who they are. But isn't it interesting how one sin leads to another? How his pride in one area leaches over into something else? And, and that's, that's true for us, saints of God. When we struggle with pride in one area, we see it creeping out in others. If we're wrestling with lust, it often manifests itself in anger. When there is sin in our heart that we are not quick to confess, it often comes out and shows up in other ways. And that's because it's in the heart. And the scripture tells us that out of the heart comes all manner of evil. Mark 6 or Mark 7 lists those. And Jesus tells his disciples that those who are not against him are for him. The disciples shouldn't seek to stop this man because he was doing a work in Christ's name. It seems like this man that scripture doesn't name was almost more concerned about God's glory than the disciples themselves, at least in this moment. They were worried about protecting their own kingdom. Often we think of John the the beloved, John the apostle, as, as kind of meek and mild, but remember... Jesus called them the sons of James and John, the sons of thunder. So he had some, he had some fire in him, and sometimes it was misdirected. They were worried about protecting their own kingdom. So let me ask you tonight, whose kingdom are you building? Christ's kingdom, or are you building your own kingdom? These disciples, in, in both of these uh, sections, were preoccupied with self-interest. Jesus, however, was preoccupied with honoring his father and doing the work that he was sent to do. The disciples were thinking, what can I get? Jesus was saying, what can I give? Jesus humbled himself. We read um, in Mark 10, 45, that he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus humbled himself. We see in Philippians 2, that we should have that mind in us as we serve. Paul writes, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on a cross. Christ was the epitome of humility. And he is our example in this. We must follow him in his humility. We must reject the ways of the world that influence us towards achieving prestige and power for our own glory. Jesus said, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. I ask you, have you received Christ tonight? Have you bowed the knee to him as Lord, confessing your sins and trusting him fully for your salvation? If not, I invite you to do so. And if you've not yet understood who Jesus is and what he came to do and what it means to follow him, consider that he died for your salvation. He is the Messiah. And following him means walking in his ways of humility. So may God give us grace to consider Christ the supreme example of humility and honor him by living lives of self-abandoning worship. Let us pray.